Hi, boys and girls. It's Movie Geeks United. Thanks for joining us for another week of exciting movie talk. You know what? According to Blog Talk Radio, um, something like 40% of our listenership uh, is women, and the remainder are men. Did you know that? That's fascinating Uh, and surprising, actually. Uh, Yeah, well, that's good. I'm I'm glad. It's interesting that we start this way because, you know, one of the uh, – I'm waiting for Jerry to get on to talk about some other movies. But uh, one of the films that I watched this week is uh, a controversial topic, you know, related to gender or really solely about gender. It's called The Red Pill. Uh, uh, And it's been raising some controversy because it's about a – it's by a feminist – <clears throat> filmmaker who, you know, raised the money to do it on Kickstarter, do this documentary. Uh, her name is Kathy J. She was, uh, you know, she regards herself as a feminist uh, who wanted to explore the uh, the the uh, motivations and behind the uh, men's movement. The, it's a movement that a lot of feminists consider to be misogynist. And there's certainly a lot of misogynist practitioners or or members of the men's movement, uh, uh, which it does include uh, uh, MGTOW. I don't know if you've ever heard. I, you know, I'd seen the term, but I'd never heard it said out loud. But uh, MGTOW, men going their own way. That is to say, men who are eschewing marriage and children. Because they they uh-huh. feel it's a, a a scam that that could uh, uh, ensnare them and take <laughs> everything away from them, and right. you know they they have a point. I mean, you know, there's a lot. Of, you know, I'm I'm totally on on uh, women's side in terms of getting uh, getting equal pay and all that kind of stuff. However, uh, when you consider you know men's um, Treatment in the courts, for instance, in terms of custody, uh, there's almost literally nothing that a woman can do to to uh, uh, to disqualify her from getting ultimately getting custody of the kids, even even if the father is obviously someone who's better equipped to take care of them. But most of the time, the kids go to the mother, and uh, not only that, but uh, you know a lot of a lot of uh, fathers end up paying for children that not, aren't even theirs. Uh, oh, not a lot, but some do. Um, uh, and and also uh, the 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 thing talk, goes into uh, how many men are actually um, actually victims of abuse by their spouse, uh, and and how that abuse is actually even handled by the police, which usually it isn't. It's like Toby Hooper uh, was just abused by his uh, girlfriend. Did you see that? No. Uh-uh. Yeah, he was. Interesting. Uh, his girlfriend beat that beat the hell out of him. <laughs> so we called. I mean, it's not funny. Uh, yeah. It is strange. He has to be like the, a sixty-year-old man now or something, right? He's like sixty. Yeah. So he directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I guess he's still scoring uh, hot young chicks off of it. But she, I mean, she probably a lot of horror behavior. <laughs> And uh, and uh, she just beat the hell out of him. He took pictures and called the cops and everything. It was uh, something else. 
Yeah, I mean it, it's a it, it's a it's it's a problem, you know, and uh, it also, you know, the men's men's movement also covers, you know, just how <clears throat> how to react in a world where feminism has has arrived, and um, and it's not, uh, you know, at least in, ter- in terms of the movie. Okay, I'm just, you know, this is not my opinion. It's just how the movie does it. There's just a lot of, uh, you know. Things that are happening to to men these days that they're unprepared for, and uh, and, I, and so it's not like the men's movie is trying to. I mean, certainly some people in it are, but it's not like it's trying to tear down feminism. It's just saying, well, men have some issues too that need, and they're not being addressed. Anyway, this this filmmaker Cassie J does a pretty good job. Uh, you know, it, it has all the hallmarks. You know, I'm not a fan of filmmakers putting themselves into the movie. Of course, I've said this on this show before. Documentary filmmakers that put themselves into the movie is kind of a host, so it makes it easier for them to uh, to express their journey. You know, and uh, I've talked to some filmmakers, and, and they say, "Well, that's." It's kind of a way to make the movie more marketable in a way, or make it more of a narrative. Um, I, I don't really like like it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's necessary. I watched another documentary this week that, that did it, but I had to cut it off because it was so bad. But it was about the uh, McDonald's massacre in uh, California oh. in the eighties, yeah. uh, and, and I cut it off. Cause How I remember was, that. Uh, so stupid, but uh, it was bloody and horrible. Don't watch it. It's called 77 Minutes. But, um, oh, okay. uh, it's the not called pill, the, I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, no. But uh, I, uh, the... Uh, Come on, man. That's funny. <laughs> it's, uh, it's got a re- really long title. It's, it's uh, To All Beef Patty Special Sauce Pickles <laughs> whatever it is. No, uh, uh, but uh, the um, the red pill, even though it's it's amateurish, you know, lots of shots of her driving around and stuff. I thought, uh, you know, so visually it's not interesting, but I did think that it was interesting. And I'm taking her on her word that she's a feminist. It could be a total fake fakery for all I know, but um, but she is turned around by what she learns about the uh, about the men's movement and and she's also very fair in terms of showing the other side showing the feminist uh and the gen, uh gender specialists who are uh you know talking about it as well and um so i think it's a it's an interesting movie it's uh uh you know when you go to imdb and you look at the reviews you know the first initial reviews are absolutely glowing 10 stars you know uh, and then by the time the movie started Filtering out to the people, to other people, uh, mm. it, it gets all, all one star reviews and saying, "Oh, it's horrible" and everything. So you can see it's you know it's completely, uh, obviously, com- completely like many things in our culture these days. We're talking about a completely divided populace, um, and uh, but I think that I thought that it was eminently fair. Um, okay, let's bring on Jerry. Let's bring on Jerry. Okay. Hey, Jerry. Okay. So what's a good? So what's a good movie? So what's a good movie? No, well, no, let me just tell it? you this. I have to say this. Uh, one, you know, I'm going to go on another little rant here. 
but since we didn't really get to talk about it a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, I offered my friend's review of the Wonder Wonder Woman, which was a largely negative review that he had, uh, you know, a negative opinion that had come from him watching it at the drive-in, which I don't think is the proper way to watch that movie. But it made me not go see it. But a couple of weeks later, I said, I got to see it. It's a cultural phenomenon. I got to see it. So I went out, and you know what? I kind of loved it. Good. Uh, I'm glad to hear you like something. I mean, it's like like going to the movies with Simon <laughs> Himmler with you. I mean, it's like, no, seriously. I mean, it's like the, it, it really makes you not want to do the show some days because you're so negative on everything. So I'm glad to hear you like something. I mean, well, I think all the time. It's just you know, it, it's they're not just they're nece- they're not necessarily things that are coming out today. But uh, well, no, no, well, that, no, that's an easy thing. No, you could be you could be largely forgiven for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, I see no, stuff I love all the time. Like, I just didn't you like? But it actually was actually kind of good. You know, I mean, it was. It was. I mean, lar- it, most of the way through. Let me let me put it, let me say this. First of all. Gal Gadot is the reason to watch the movie. No question about it. Instant star. Um, I'm not just talking about her physical presence, but uh, uh, there is there's a uh, there's an intelligence and a charm there mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that's pretty obvious. Great voice. Uh, uh, obviously, physically capable of doing a lot of that. Uh, a lot of the work that needs to be done in the movie, which probably sets her apart from a lot of the uh, people playing uh, superheroes, because um, she's an athlete, mm-hmm. uh, and not only that, but also a, a beauty queen from from Israel. She was mm-hmm. almost she came close to being Miss Universe, um, but uh, I thought she was fantastic. I thought that Chris Pine was great. He was uh, very funny, very game for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they had chemistry. Um, I I wasn't very interested in the villains. I don't really understand why the villains. Is this like a holdover? Tell me, Jerry. Is this is the is the hold? Uh, okay, why are all the villains in these movies like? 40, 50 year old men that can easily be vanquished. I mean, you've got. Well, he couldn't be vanquished. You know, who I, I don't want to say, but the villain, the main villain, not not the woman who looks like a leftover from Russia, from Russia with love or whatever. But um, you know, I, I thought the main villain though was actually um, I, I didn't I did not see that coming at all. By the way, um, but I actually thought he was very good. Um, oh, I, I who's the villain? I, mean, I don't. Oh, oh, I don't want to go into that because isn't that a spoiler? I, I don't know. Is it? I, I guess it, it is. is. But, it is okay, I guess it is. I, I won't go into it, but they're always 40, 50-year-old men. So the first two 40- or 50-year-old men that you see in the movie, they're the villain. Right. Okay? So let's just say that. Um, uh, but in every in – every, uh, think about it. Okay, I'm just going to name off. I can't remember the movies that they were villains in, but I'm just going to say some of them that I know were villains. Willem Dafoe, uh, uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, Mickey Rourke, uh, Jeff Bridges. Um, uh, well, in this one, we've got Danny Houston, uh, who 
you know, when it comes time for Gal Gadot to fight Danny Houston, I don't care what kind of super poppers he's sniffing up his uh, nose. Uh, there's no way that Danny Houston's going to win in any kind of fight because he's, he's 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 just well, a big he's just a big blob of blob of goo. He's, he's you know, I don't care if he's got a he's fucking a uh, Nazi he's a uniform Houston. on. He's a Houston. He's got he's intoxicated probably. I mean, I, come on. I don't know. You just just when you see some 25 year old uh, superwoman. Uh, who's like literally a superwoman in real life, right. uh, fighting against a, a 65-year-old, I don't know how old he is, but he's definitely in his mid-50s, uh, uh, Danny Houston with gray hair. Uh, uh, you know, I don't care what, <laughs> I, it's just not exciting. Hey, look, he's grateful for the check, you know, I mean, he's just grateful I'm for glad the that age. they're getting a check. That's, that's the best thing I can he's say about it. But weren't, hey, like, hey. <laughs> Weren't uh, a lot of the Bond villains, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, like, Gert I was saying, You would know Con- and, uh, Connery or Brosnan could okay. kick their ass? Or... I, okay, there, the, that's, that's uh, the, I was going to say, is this a holdover from, it's good that you mentioned the Bond films, but also, uh, like Batman, you know, of course, we lost out at, at West this week, but, or last week or whatever, but... Uh, um, you know, because in Batman, in the television show Batman, they were always middle-aged, you know. I mean, is, is that because, you know, they always wanted to get, you know, sort of stars to play those roles? And yeah. The established think, stars at that point were like yeah. 40 or 50 years old? Yeah, I mean, so, I think there's that. And it was also, and let's not forget, though, Adam List was like the sort of the quintessential Batman because he had a gut. Um <laughs> You know, he didn't have ads to steal or anything, so, I mean, there's something very nice well, about that. Well, you know, that. Even... Yes, something else, I mean, true. age bring, age, age brings gravitas as well, which is something yes. you need for a villain. Okay. All right, I mean, you know, yeah, I guess that's fair. That's a great point, because look at, look at, um, the, uh, the Jesse Eisenberg Lex Luthor just doesn't work. Right. I mean, you know, that's, 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 a, that's a, great, a fair point. great, great, great great point. I mean, it doesn't work, and that's one of the major but, problems of that film, or among other ones, but I mean, yeah. Um, but, but okay, so let's go back to the original, the the Richard Donner Superman. There, you have more of a closer match. You have, you have, you know, mm-hmm. yes, you have the young Christopher Reeve, but but really, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor isn't that really that far off, really. He's only about ten years older. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, you know, and, that's and how I'm talking about. Hackman, you have a very bumbling Ned Beatty, uh, you know. So that was more uh, Superman in the, in the villain aspect of it was more comic book was more yeah. more the old fashioned comic booky. Uh, uh-huh. But but the, the villain for what he or she lacks in uh, physical strength uh, often uh, has makes up for it yeah. by by being rich and super cunning and manipulative yeah. Yeah. and all of that. And also, and also, you know, inventive in terms of weapons or, you know, whatever they're, I don't yeah. know what kind of weapon Egghead I mean, had. I or, mean, <laughs> yeah, but, look, but look, I mean, look at the new Spider-Man. Michael Keaton is the villain in the new Spider-Man movie. So, well, he's 65 uh, years old now. Well, I'm not, I mean, like I'm just saying, I mean, he brings so much to that part, though. I mean, 
Chris Nolan's Batman films are the closest we're going to come to that. Um, there you go. See, that's a great. That's that's yeah. perfect. See, that's that's one of the reasons that Heath Ledger really works as yeah. the Joker there because he's not a joke. He's not like the Joker of of Jack Nicholson, who who at the time that he did that was probably twenty five years older than I, I don't know what the age was, but he was definitely in his fifties. Uh, um, so. Um, you know, I mean that—that—that's more of the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, that's—that's that's a better match. Uh, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I love seeing all the uh, you know older stars ha- having something to do in movies like this or whatever. But then again, you know, there's part of me that goes, yeah, but I mean, you know, how you know. You know, fighting some seventy-year-old dude. You know, <laughs> at the end of the movie, it kind of takes a little. And it's a little. And frankly, you know, there's a little. I don't know. Do I feel? Do I feel sort of an ageist kind of thing going on here? Because you know, like it's. I don't really? know if that's because I'm you know, getting older. He, and what does he say? And uh, going back to the Dark Knight, he says, you know, if you 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 live long enough, you become the villain. Hmm. So there's that. I mean, I, I think we're re- I, I think we're personally reading too much into all this. I think it's just like we got to give actors, we got to give these actors work or whatever. But uh, well, I just think it's an interesting question and and uh, something that might make the movies better if people think about it a little bit more. But who knows? I could be completely uh, might be completely wrong. Maybe people love Danny Houston as the villain in it. And, I don't think most uh, so. people going to see Wonder Woman even know who the hell Danny Houston is. <laughs> I mean, well, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so what? What? What's the point in casting him? Why not put? Uh, why not put someone younger and more vital in there? It well, really looks like he like could the, win. Like the any like the I, I would say Mr. Hooper from Sesame Street, but um or whatever. But he's dead. <laughs> I mean, you know, like uh, Tom Hiddleston playing Loki. You know, that was an interesting. I mean, no, that's kind of a, a great. That's a great choice. I, I, you know, it's. I, I think everyone wants to be in these movies right now because they're very popular. We're in that. We're in that. We're still in that period where all these things are very popular. So everyone wants. Everyone wants to get their. You know, wants their house, their pound of flesh, or whatever in these things. So. um you know, I'm sure you know someone throws you know Danny Houston's agent. Hey, do you want to be in this? He, he probably he's like, yeah, I, I could you know because everyone wants to. Also, everyone wants. To, I don't even know if they do this anymore. The percentage of the points in the gross or whatever. You know, everyone wants. You know, everyone wants in on that original thing that Lucas and Spielberg, the points on the gross and the Harrison Ford got in. Everyone wants that. Everyone wants what Jack Nicholson got the. You know, he made fifty million dollars on Batman. Every actor wants that. Don't kid yourself. Um, everyone. I know they deserve it, and I'm glad they're getting the big thing. I don't you know, know I'm if they're glad that Paul deal. Giamatti got paid, and I don't know if they're Mickey getting the Nicholson deal. But I mean, no, no, but, they're, they're, they they are not getting the Nicholson deal. Nicholson was <laughs> he was he was savvy enough to uncanny, ask for it. Uncanny as hell with that. I mean, yeah, but he was also uh, he also did it at the very early stages of that kind of movie. Yeah, yeah, and plus, all you who else you want to cast as the Joker in 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 nineteen eighty nine or whatever year that was? Uh, you yeah, got to go with Jack. I mean, that was that was the it. obvious choice. So he had a huge yeah. bargaining chip there. But yeah. the fact that I mean, he asked it, for a percentage of whatever he asked for the <laughs> the album and merchandising or whatever, I mean, that's what he got rich off of. Oh yeah, I mean. 
let's not, I mean, everyone took a page from, you know, everyone laughed at Lucas, but he was right in the merchandise. And that's where, you know, as I said in Spaceballs, that's where the money is. And he was, and he was the first to really, you know, hone in on that. And everyone has since then has really tried to replicate. Even Travolta. I mean, Travolta went through those years when he was in no man's land in terms of his career but he was wealthy beyond imagination. He was flying his own planes and mm-hmm. flying to his house and everything like that. And you wondered, he's not doing well. How is he affording all this? Because he was smart enough uh, to uh, get a percentage of the gross for both the Saturday Night Fever and Grease soundtracks. Yeah. That'll set you up for life. Life, oh, yeah. you're set up. That's true. I didn't know he got a percentage of the Grease. Well, it makes make sense because he's singing on it. So, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. You mean it wasn't well, a welcome that's... back cotter lunchbox? <laughs> that would have been. I'm sure he probably got a got of mint off of that too. <laughs> that would have been, yeah. And and you know the million selling boy in the plastic bubble uh, uh, action figure. That's one of the great, right. great, great TV movies of all time. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind yeah. Of, but I'm telling you, man, that's uh, that lunchbox was literally his meal ticket. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, funny. God. I like that. Right. That's that's cute. All right. Now, uh, Gene, what hey, was the before movie we get too far about? in the weeds, can I can I bring up something? Can I? Yeah. Uh, can I talk about my weekend real quick? Yeah, no, no, no. Let's oh yeah, we're we're yeah, we're anxious to hear about this. this Let's is hear more it. important than anything I have to say <laughs> by a long shot. Um. All right. So in 2014, we did episode two of Tinseltown Tragedies, which was about the unsolved murder of actress Krista Helm. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's available. Look it up. Yeah, um, look it up. So a Go pr- listen to producer it. from an NBC producer contacted me last month or two ago and started asking me questions about it and asked me if I'd be interested in participating for an on-camera interview for a true crime series that they're doing, and they're dedicating an episode of it to Krista's case. He said, you're one of three or four people outside of the immediate players that knows the whole story and we'd like you to come on. And I said, well, you should go to these people first. And I gave them the names of two of the guests of our show who have been working on it for years. They did a blog and have written extensively about it over the years. And I said, and if they don't want to do it, or you still need me, then I'll be happy to help because I'm not like eager to be on TV. It's, 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 it's just been very uncomfortable for me, that whole notion. So, uh, they said, okay, but he and I were in contact for for the past month, and he would ask questions. Can you do you have a contact for this person? What do you think about this and that? And so the conversation was ongoing, and eventually he said, look, we're going to fly to Cincinnati because a lot of the guests that we're getting are uh, from the uh, East Coast, and it's inconvenient for them to fly to L.A. So we're going to set up something in Cincinnati. Four or five people are going to fly out and interview, and you, we'd like you to be one of them. I, I said, okay, well, if you need me, I said, but you got the other blogger that spent years doing it. What do you need me for? And he said, well, you both are going to tell the whole story, and we're going to cut between the two of you, kind of like a there you uh, go. two voices yeah, in a sense. complimentary story. So I, I said, okay, that sounds fine. I found out more about the show. It's going to premiere on Oxygen Network the first quarter of next year. Oxygen used to be like really dumb uh, women catfighting kind of programming. They've switched over to 100% true crime. It's a reboot of the Mysteries and Scandals show, but it won't be the A.J. Benza kind of 
fame ain't it a bitch kind of approach to mysteries and scandals. It's going to be hosted by Soledad O'Brien, who is a CNN uh, anchor. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. So okay. they 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 fly me out. I'm a terrible flyer, um, and, but I make it. And they rented the first floor of this really expensive home. And the family there is dedicated to the first floor for like an Airbnb. And it's beautiful. And they shot interviews all day. Friday, I was the last interview. And I, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I was like, it, it's been really unpleasant the past few days being so nervous about this. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, uh, I'm not like a face-to-face social person in front of people. I, I don't feel comfortable in every environment I walk into. I wish I was that You don't kind consider of guy. yourself camera ready either, huh? <laughs> no, so I bought a lot of... Uh, New clothes and stuff, and uh, I mean, but I I wasn't self-conscious in that way. When I got there, um, the childhood friend of Krista was there, and she was part of the show three years ago. She didn't remember doing our show, uh, and uh, eventually it came back to her after I explained more about it. Wow! And and then she, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's that's a big other good thing. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and then we uh, and I was like, yeah, you, I sent you the show. You listened to it, and you talked about how you liked it, and you gave your own theory as to what happened. And you know, we had a whole conversation about it. And then I interviewed you for like an hour and a half. Uh, anyway, so then then um, they're they're setting up in different spots of the house to, to get different angles and environments for all the guests. I'm the last interview of the day, so I they give me some kind of high chair that a baby would sit at a table or something, and it's really uncomfortable to sit in. But they get me set up there. And I just wasn't uh, – I don't necessarily feel that great about it um, for a couple of reasons. One, I hadn't eaten since like 8 o'clock in the morning. It's now 5 o'clock oh, in the no. afternoon. Oh, Jesus uh, My voice, it wasn't the Wolfman Jack kind of voice that I like. It was It was like a tired, scratchy voice. And um, and the producer um, was the one asking questions, but they they bring stuff up like, uh, well, you know her roommate, um, Stephanie. Um, her roommate lied to me several times in our interview with her. She told me uh, the exact opposite thing on a couple of points than she told the police which led me to believe that she knows a lot more than she's telling. And she never participates in any of this stuff. So they wanted me to talk a little bit about that. So I said, honestly, yes, she lied to me about a couple of things because it's the truth. I'm not trying to bad talk mm-hmm. anyone. It's just it's what happened. And then they said, well, tell me what you think of what she did for a living. I said, I don't know what she did for a living, Stephanie, the roommate. And, and he said, well, she was a prostitute. And I said, well, I didn't even think to ask if she, <laughs> if she was a prostitute. So there there were a couple of things that you know I just didn't know because they weren't within the sphere of the questions I asked originally three years ago. I was only comfortable with talking about what I knew. <clears throat> um, and, so, and they wanted to push me a couple of times in directions where I did not personally hear something or find out something. And I said, I-, I won't answer that because I don't know that for sure. I don't want to represent information that I haven't been privy to. Uh, so I stood my ground there. 
Uh, and at the end of it, I, I, I mean, I didn't really feel like I did a great, uh, as good a job as I wanted to do, but we talked for two hours and they said, no, it was an excellent interview. We're going to be able to use a lot of that stuff. So I thought, okay. Um, it was just a odd experience. And plus the main thing was this, when I put together my show mm-hmm. on Krista Helm, 90% of that story I let other people tell. And then I came in as a narrator and filled in blanks and set things up. It's different when you're going somewhere and, and you're representing that story yourself alone mm-hmm. on camera. It's almost like, Jerry, I've never met your mom. Right. I'm going to go on camera and be on TV and talk about your mom like I know everything about her. It just feels uncomfortable for me. Oh, yeah. No, no. You I know. I, I, I understand. I feel the same way. I mean, it's very strange. I mean, you did it, though, but I understand what, I understand exactly I, what you're saying, I, though. I did it ultimately because the most important thing is keeping her story out there. And yeah. I, honest to God, I think the more amateur sleuths get on this thing, the greater the chance it has of being solved because investigators are overwhelmed. You know, they they have hundreds, if not thousands of cases and new ones coming in every day. The amateur sleuth can really make a difference in this kind of stuff. Um, so I did it for that reason. But I and, – and people were saying, oh, you must be so excited. You're going to be on TV and all that kind of stuff. What an opportunity. And I was like, no, I absolutely don't feel like that because I'm always cognizant of the fact that I'm going to talk about a woman who was murdered. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is not – that's not exciting. It feels like a duty and something I have – I should do if I'm needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not like it's not an opportunity. Uh, other than that, yeah, I mean, they did like ask they were me inviting you on to talk about our show or anything like that. Right. That, and that, I did that mention be our show exciting, but, be, uh, because because they said, uh, you know, who are you and uh, tell the camera who you are and how you came to Krista's case. So I did tell them, you know, I, I, I co-host a show named Move, podcast called Movie Geeks United. It's like a film school and a podcast. But we also have special series, and one of those series is about unsolved Hollywood murder. And in researching that series, I happen upon Krista's story. So, I mean, Movie Geeks United is in there, and it has to be because it creates a context for why I'm mm-hmm. even on camera. <laughs> yes. So yes. when this airs, Movie Geeks United will come up. Yeah. It That's was good. awkward. It was very awkward, uncomfortable. I and I look at these that. shows now. I look at these shows now, and there's a difference. See, I think I could have excelled at it if I was having a conversation with someone because I know how to do that. I can talk right. to people in that fashion. But this person's not going to be on camera. It's not meant to be a conversation. So it's mm-hmm. almost like it feels it feels more presentational than conversational. And so that well, yeah, me- I mean, I would have. I think I I would have approached it, you know, if I if I had been in your shoes, I would have approached it and imagined what the final piece was going to be, and then imagined what my place in it was going to be, and I think I would have also like kind of sussed out early on without them even having to tell me that 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 I was kind of going to be one of the narrators of this story. And mm-hmm. I think if you kind of go in with that kind of mindset and say, "Well, I'm the narr- I'm a narrator of this story, so I have to approach it like that," then uh, then I think that would have <clears throat> cleared up any kind of nervousness or, or uh, apprehension that I might have. Right. Had. That's a good. That's a well, good. I understood I like, all. I, I mean, I, under, I understood all of that, but 
even so, it just felt awkward talking about uh, the men she slept with, all the kind of uh, cunning things that she would do, uh, the plastic surgery that she had. And I, I, I couldn't avoid feeling like uh, like the impression of me would be that I'm hitching my wagon on this thing, uh-huh. and I'm 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 absolutely not. I mean, I, I'm not thinking that oh, I can get to the next level if I talk about this murder. Uh, no, that's not <laughs> that's not my motivation. No, no, of course all. not. No, no, of course. So when he asked me stuff of like, tell tell me about the plastic surgery that she she had, and I hadn't even thought about it. I I, I was like. Yes, you have plastic surgery. You get plastic surgery when you want to be more, uh, I mean, in her case, more enticing and alluring to, to men. She was an early proponent of plastic surgery for that reason. It made her feel a little bit more exotic and beautiful and and desirable. Uh, and her friend said that if you got her near a radiator, she'd probably melt. She had so much of it. But, uh, but, it, but it felt awkward because I don't want to – I'm talking like and, – and they interviewed her daughter – earlier in the morning and she got very emotional talking about her mother and it, apparently it was a great interview. And here I am telling me about her plastic surgery and that kind of stuff. It just felt wrong. And I, and I also realized they can edit it however they want. That's, uh, that's what I was going to say that. that scares <laughs> <me>. <laughs> you know, you just have to wait and see what the editing is going to bring. Cause I think you'll, you'll probably, whatever you think it's going to be, you'll probably be surprised. So, uh, so anyway, you know, I mean, I think it's good. I think it's a good opportunity, and yeah, I understand the the whole idea of like you know talking about these intimate things. But then again, uh, just in doing this show, even though you didn't actually foresee anything like this happening, uh, in doing this show, you kind of open yourself up for that kind of thing, you know. So being a player in it, yeah. Which I yeah, I because guess you're, in a way, I'm fine with it. But you know, there's also there's also I thought, well, would it be easier for me to like pretend like I'm playing a role or something? <laughs> like, how do I pretend to be myself? Because I can't, I can't take away the self-conscious nature of what that is to be sitting in a high chair, to have two cameras <laughs> on you, and not really be engaged in a conversation, having to open up every sentence with, well, Krista said this. And then Tony Sirico is a major player in this story, and, and oh. so I, I – I put that part in. Yeah, he's, he's, I think he had something to do with it. So I started talking about that, and then uh, they said, okay, give us a version where you say exactly that, but don't use his name. And I was like, are mm. you worried about being, being sued or something? And they said, yeah, we, we want to cover our bases. So that was mm. difficult. And then Krista had this guy, and then they came over, and then this guy, you know, was just, it's not comfortable. <laughs> I don't want to do it again. Well, don't don't worry about it. It'll be it'll all come out and it'll all come out in the wash, so to speak. So it's I'm sure it'll be fine. I did look. I'm They're sure I looked devastatingly handsome, though. I mean, uh, I mean that's, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Well, hey, I said I asked, the, I asked the cameraman. I looked devastatingly handsome, right? And they said, "Oh no, we got to put that lens on. We just have the handsome lens on. We got to put on the." <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Very well, odd. that's good. But the ca- cameraman was great. He was the cameraman was like, "What are you doing in Cincinnati tonight?" Because I had one night in Cincinnati, and I said, "I don't know." I was thinking of looking for WKRP, and he was like, I "Well, you're going to be looking for a while." <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. 
The only oh, thing I saw of Cincinnati was the Uno's Pizza right next door to my hotel. I mean, it really wasn't a pleasure trip. No, I, haven't, I haven't seen I should have suggested so that you go. They have a great modern uh, art museum in Cincinnati that's uh, absolutely stunning. Uh, you should have gone to that. I, w- I, I, was, I was back in the hotel like just before 9, and then I left the next day. I, there was no art museum time. And plus, I didn't have a car. I got dropped off at the hotel, and the hotel was near – Four or five restaurants, and that was that was what I had in terms of options. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, okay. Well, uh, are we getting back to movies now? Yeah, let's get <laughs> sure. back to movies. I have an interesting way to frame this, maybe. And if we've talked, I mean, what Dean? What did you talk about before I came on? Just so I don't like step the on red your pill. Uh, a, a feminist filmmaker going and uh, examining the men's movement and and what what's behind it. So it's actually one of the few movies about uh, where a documentarian goes in with one opinion and actually turns it, it gets turned around. Uh, uh, that's uh, unheard of. Understand it? That's really yeah. That's what I thought was kind of brave about it was the you know yeah. You never see that from Michael Moore. No, I was going to say, you don't see that. Almost any documentary filmmaker, they go in with a, you know, they usually go in with a kind of an agenda or whatever, and they kind of stick to it. Before we go, before we go, that's actually a really interesting point point that you bring up, because that wasn't always the case. I mean, it seems like in the last, like in this century at least, in the rise of the documentary, I mean, this week we have AFI docs going on and that sort of thing. But it does seem like the documentary has basically become a visual op-ed. I mean, for lack of a better, mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. And that's the effect of Michael Moore. Yeah. You know, I'm not, no, I'm not disputing that. that. But that just seems what it is, like with Morgan Spurlock, I mean, or with, with, with whatever, you know, with whatever. It just doesn't seem like... We're getting a, you know, it used to be, there, there was a tiny you know, front line used to make really good documentaries. Um, those were always good. On the stuff you see on PBS or Ken Burns, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. But it does yeah. seem like we are, we are living in an era of even where the documentary is a very partisan thing. Um, well, it's also partially, you know, because I approached this in the little review that I did for Red Pill. One of my problems with it is the fact that it is hosted, like many documentaries are hosted, by their filmmaker. And if you're hosted by, you know, if it's if it's done Michael Moore style, where he's the host and he's he's going to be taking you through his journey of going through and figuring out every every aspect of whatever subject matter he's tackling uh you know it, it's it becomes a movie about them it becomes a movie about uh their uh whether whether their worldview is being upheld by the facts that they encounter or whether it's being uh whether it's being turned upside down by it so right right uh, i mean the difference is you know <clears throat> The best documentaries are the ones that are fly on the wall, verite documentaries where the where the where the documentarian stays out of it largely. I mean, you can hear them from behind the camera, maybe or something like that. But if they're in there as a host, it becomes more personal, uh, and uh, it becomes something else. But the 
uh, fly on the wall kind of documentarians like you know the Maisels or or, or Frederick Wiseman, uh, who luckily has a new movie mm-hmm. coming out by the way this fall about the uh, uh, New York Public Library. Uh, but uh, you know those kind of documentarians are very willing <coughs> to stay out of it. They want to stay out of it. Uh, right. The, it, they're coming in with no preconceived notions. Uh, they merely want to observe, and then they take their observations and shape them into a movie when in the mm-hmm. editing room. Uh, so that they're not trying to. We don't know what their uh, what their uh, preconceived notions are of their subject matter. Right. And uh, and so it doesn't become a movie about whether their minds get changed or not. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And those, um, those are the documentaries that are typically, I mean, they're the strongest um, yes. because they they allow you to be immersed in the lives of the subjects without any kind of uh, ego getting in the way. And the the best documentaries do that. And even something sometimes it's unavoidable, like in Harlan County, USA, uh, you know, the director and her crew were shot at. So that needs to be in the documentary. <laughs> Yeah, really that's like truly, truly one of the great documentaries that I that I've seen. It's, it's absolutely the best. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. that has to be yeah. in that but has to be in the top three of any better. That has to be in the, uh, the top one. Actually, yeah, I'm beginning to think. Let me ask you guys a question though, because I'm bringing this up, and there's other stuff I want to talk about. But did either of you watch um, on Showtime if you have it the Oliver Stone Putin interviews? Yes. Yes. Okay, I would like to talk about this because um, in that regard, I don't care about what's going on right now in our country with the election or anything. I know that's part of it, but it's not. Um, what did you guys think of it? If you, I'm just very curious because this is, this is fa- to me, this is fascinating. Um, yeah. But since we just talked about the, doc- the documentarian putting himself in the document. I didn't. I. I know it's. It's kind of unavoidable for Stone not to be in it. He. He is oh. in it. But here, yeah, but Putin this is, is different. Be- yeah, but Putin because this is, is so not a, diff- This is not a documentary. No. 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 Uh, it, 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 it is. It is built to be a com- an interview, an on camera interview. Yeah. And I, I. You know, he puts himself in like the David Frost Nixon kind of role. Right. Um, yeah. And, and and Oliver Stone is essential in that equation. Yeah, he is essential, but. I think, you know, I have to hand it to Putin. I, I, I thought he, you know, he comes across as his... I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know, and I, I, I read Gary Kasparov's book on um, Putin that came out last year, and I, I thought there's just a lot of interesting stuff that he reveals, um, you, you know, because you, you have to, you know, you have to look at Putin in relation to Gorbachev and Yeltsin, especially Yeltsin, but then he makes this off-handed comment about Khrushchev, which I just found was fascinating. And he just basically said, I, I really don't think too much of um, the Khrushchev. And I was like, wow, okay, that's very interesting. You can read, there's so much you can read into that. But no, you do need um, Oliver Stone there. And it's very interesting because he makes a lot of comments that you're just like, wow, okay, you really do believe some of the stuff that, um, I, I was I was kind of stunned by some of the stuff that he admitted on camera. Stone. Um, that's why I bring him up because he is well, just, he is such, I, I, he's I, essential. Uh, yeah, he is essential, but um, and it uh, is also essential that he showed up and uh, said, "I'm going to give you a fair shake. I'm going to let you tell your side of things." Hmm. I do I do think he was too fawning 
throughout the interview, oh, yeah. but I also I'm also very aware that if he was if he wasn't, uh, there wouldn't have been an interview. So yeah, he if he if he wants to present this, then he needed to assume that uh, tone. Um, but at the same time, uh, I do think he was played by Putin. Uh, oh yeah. And I I do think it was a major misstep not to ask about well what about all of your opponents turning up poisoned or murdered. Yeah. Um, thank you. I mean, if he didn't crucial. ask that question, if he didn't ask that question, then he missed the story. He does miss the story. Yeah. Well, he I mean, he asked every other question. He he did. <laughs> I'm sure credit, he did. He, but he, 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 he did not avoid the, on, the. But he wanted to stay on his subject's good side. I mean, you know, because but that's not because, a true interview, though. That's not a true. Obviously, yeah, it's that's what I'm saying. He wanted to stay on his good side because obviously he was granting him a huge favor by even acquiescing to the interview. So I mean, uh, in in doing that, you. Uh, you neuter any kind of uh, real, uh, you know, uh, real penetrating questions uh, that uh, that might, you know, well, I th- might be more I interesting. Think I think for the most for the most part, for the most part, his questions were very smart and well informed. I mean, Oliver mm-hmm. Stone knows his history. He knew the history of uh, yes. Russia enough to yeah, enough to frame some very interesting questions. Americans don't know the history of Russia. It's interesting how I guarantee you more Russians know English. Than English people know Russian. I mean, there doesn't well, seem to be any whatsoever. Well, a lot of us, a, a lot of us do know Russian history actually, just because I, I'm, I would have majored. It. I knew a lot even going before going into college. I knew a lot of Russian history, but I was kind of, you know, you know, he does know his stuff, but um, I just think, you know, it was very fawning. I mean, to the point that. When he goes on Monday night to to plug the to plug on Colbert, he makes it. I do think he made a jackass out of himself on Stephen Colbert. I really. Do. I didn't see the Colbert, but I did see I did see him on CBS, uh, the CBS Morning Show, and uh, he he was very like, oh, I think everybody's going to come away with a very different opinion of Putin, and I, I I think it's very important for us to be friends and all that kind of stuff, and uh. uh you know, uh, not taking into account the fact that you know that, that this is the this is a guy that uh, this is a guy that that plays plays chess with the world. Yeah, and he, uh, he, I was kind of dumb. But I, 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 I know what you're talking about too. Seeing that that interview, I saw that one too. Yeah, um, I I, under, I understand, and I think what in in principle, what he's doing is noble by. And dangerous, actually, because we've always talked about, you know, where's the dangerous Oliver Stone? Where's the Oliver Stone that really, you know, put his nuts out there? And he's doing it with these interviews because I understand that America needs an enemy to vilify. And in many cases, uh, we've we've supported these people. We've, in many cases, put these people in power to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and we've certainly meddled in the world in a way that we're accusing Russia of doing. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's it's I think it's 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 a good noble effort to actually well who are these people? Let's get their perspective. Are they the boogeymen that we've been led to believe, or are they not? I agree with that principle. And and we're adults. It's like why are we offended by hearing what Putin has to say? And I, I think that's a dangerous oh, I'm not, no one's attitude. Offended. To take. I mean, I don't think anyone's yes, offended. 
Well, I mean, certainly, the yeah, they are. I think are they are. Wait, 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 who, wait, wait, who is offended? Because you must remember. You, all right, I, I think you got, we need a little history lesson here, recent history. Um, in 2013 or 14, Pat Buchanan, who is still a very prominent conservative voice, writes an op-ed piece on Vladimir Putin, and what he says is Putin is one of us. Putin is a conservative. Why, and now, why does he say this? Because Putin is anti-homosexual. And it's very important. This article is really actually the cornerstone of everything that's going on right now. That Pat Buchanan, uh, diehard, you know, he gets his start in the Nixon administration as a diehard Reaganite, you know, cold warrior and everything. Pat Buchanan is embracing Putin. This is a watershed moment um, in American history. And well, now you got the entire – not to get too political because this is a political discussion. But, I'll, take the, I'll uh, take the political thing. I'll take, I'll take the heat for that. I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely take the heat because I think there's something but, that needs to be known. I mean this, is, this, is, this, this coincides with um, Oliver Stone's interview because it has to be known. Um, this, this country, there's a pop, part of this population that has embraced Putin even. Well, they, so they, they like Russia now. Basically, the people that I, used I, to be... I know, I know you know, I know you know better than this. There, uh, there are a lot of vocal people that that say, Oliver Stone, how dare you go talk to Putin? How dare you go talk to Chavez? I mean, it, it was it was right there in the Colbert interview for the most part. Like, yeah. Why would you? Why would you know? No, but it was very important. Oh, glad we even got that. it on our Facebook page when I posted the poster of the series. I, don't, uh, I think it's good he talked to him. I'm glad he talked to him because that those four hours are probably the best that we're going to get. Um, yeah. Certainly much better than no, Megyn Kelly. I, 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 look, I, I'm glad that he talked to him too. I mean, my point was, I wish more people saw the value in opening that dialogue and saying, "Well, let's hear what he has to say," instead yeah. of thinking, "How dare he? He's a traitor <laughs> to you know." And I I do think uh, honestly that Oliver Stone. Um, looks down on what America does uh, uh, far too – how do I say this? I think he is a little too knee-jerk anti-American on mm-hmm. all all things. Like that's his initial instinct. But, you know, he was sent to war for a dumb war. Uh, he, he lost a lot, and a lot of men did lose a lot. And right. why? Um, and he's he's made a career of making movies about uh, injustice and, and corruption and greed and all mm-hmm. the hallmarks of uh, uh, of American malfeasance. Yeah. So, um, you know, I but it's fascinating. After after every single episode, I said to myself, "This is just fascinating to watch." Yes. Um, so it it is a value. Oh, it's a big value. I mean, I do, I do think he did get played, though, but not for the reasons we, we think. I just think Putin is a much shrewder man than Oliver Stone. I mean, yeah, like, that's what Putin, I think. Putin's, I mean, you know, I haven't, even, I haven't watched masterful. it yet, but, yeah. You should watch I mean, it. I don't know. Putin is Dean, I couldn't I – Dean, I really could not rec- – I mean, I, that's the only thing I watched on TV last week when I would get home from work in the gym. That was the only thing I was interested in watching because, to me, there was nothing more interesting – then I mean, Putin is sort of like I mean, how do we say this? Putin is very interesting because he is he is a holdover of the Cold War. He was stationed in East Berlin, and he was directly you know in cahoots with Angela He's Merkel. KGB. 
Yeah, I mean, he, <laughs> you know? he, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, and he remember what is his Putin's famous line that the the dissolving of the Soviet Union is the great tragedy of the 20th century. I mean, he makes no bones about that. He, he thinks that's the worst thing to happen in the 20th, 20th century. Um, so he's a fascinating figure, and we're going to be stuck with him for a while. So it's it's good to get Which to know Which was another question can. that came up. Another yeah. question at the very end. How, how do you relinquish power? I mean, and that's been an attack against him as well, that he wants an oligarchy. How, how, how does he give up power? Because he... I mean, he destroys every single one of his opponents and blah, blah, yeah. blah, and, and maybe that's what we're dealing with here. But I, I think he's uh, – Putin is very good uh, at uh, at what he uh, did to Oliver Stone, and and it's good that we were able to see that because um, yeah. uh, you know, he was he was denying of any – but this is what Putin does. Putin, if there's a charge against him, he'll deny, deny, deny. And then the next stage of that, he'll say, well, maybe it was this or that. And then finally he'll say, yeah, I did it. So what? And I think that's what it, what's going to happen with this Russian election thing. Because mm-hmm. at first, up to up to February, when Oliver Stone interviewed him last, he's like, no, of course we didn't do that. And then after the Putin interviews, like last month, he mm-hmm. said, well, maybe it was the Russian, pa- Russian patriots that did it. Yes, so yeah. by the end of the year, he'll, he'll probably be like, yeah, we did it. So what? You do, you do it to other people, other places across the world. Why can't we do and it too? And he did, remember, he did that after the school massacre. Remember that school massacre in the, I guess, the, I guess like 10 years ago, the Beslan school massacre. And they were asking him, how are you going to deal with this? And he's like, how, basically how we'll deal with it, how you deal with it. Okay. We'll deal with it in our own way, but you have, you have no right, right to tell us how to handle this. You know, and I right. thought that you know we have to remember that about him, and you also have to remember he did he was the first leader to call on um, President Bush after nine eleven. He was the first leader that you and, know, and, and, you and Oliver Stone. If you want to know, Oliver Stone, I think in general took the right approach, mm-hmm. uh, be, be, attracting more flies with honey, uh, because he wanted that access. He wanted to get Putin's views out there so people could be made aware of them. The opposite of that would be Megyn Kelly, who got pretty crazy. What is the stupid? What is the stupid shit you're saying? And all that would have been the end of the movie. So I mean, think about it, people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the approach I mean, was you know I do think that he was. I do think that Oliver Stone is actually you know kind of very admiring of the man uh, a bit too much. Uh, but a bit uh, too much, but that but approach is give, understandable. And that is, yeah. I was going to say, isn't that that you spend so much time? I mean, we we see four hours of this, but there's a lot more footage that we haven't seen. Of course, um, yeah. So I, well, I he think said he spent, shot twenty hours. Yeah, I or mean, they spent yeah. twenty hours together or something. Yeah, I mean, so I'm you know, assuming I mean, they were shooting all that time. I want to talk about something else. And it's our our friends in the uh, our, our fellow film critics when they rave about a movie. What the hell is going on, guys? Am I not getting the right flavor of Kool Aid? I mean, what the hell is going on? I well, that's a perfect that's week, a perfect but... segue. That's a perfect segue into a movie that we've both seen. That, well, it's, uh... it's another movie, another critic, critically acclaimed movie that I've seen that I. I which I like a little bit. I mean, I like both movies. I just don't think there is the, like the. Okay, the, what, um, what movie are you talking about there? I'm talking about first. The first all right, it, it comes at night. Okay, let's talk and, about and, that one. 
All right, let's talk about that one, man. Let's let's go. Okay, let's it go. comes at, it comes at night, which, which is the new Trey Edwards Schultz movie. He he directed Cresha a couple of years ago. Made a big splash with that. Uh, uh, that's a that's a very great movie. It's pretty uh, pretty unassailable. Uh, this one is uh, well, it looks like a horror movie. It's called It Comes at Night. Uh, it's definitely being marketed as a horror movie. Um, but then uh, I guess your comment, actually, uh, you know, Jerry, the, the that, uh, about the, my masturbatory habits. I was really disappointed to see a guy who sat and was not what the movie was about, and I was just like, really? Nobody gave like, a guy. What are you talking about? That's both I mean, of <laughs> yes. I was like, don't knock, don't knock my hobbies and, and yes. not talk about it. I mean, come on. Yes. I mean, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but all right. So, but okay. Here's why. Okay, so if you don't know what it comes not it is about, it's about a family that's hunkered down in the wilderness in a cabin. Uh, Joel Edgerton is the is the father. I forgot. I don't don't know the names of the uh, wife and the son. Um, they are uh, um, they're seeking refuge, I guess, uh, from a uh, outbreak of a disease that we really don't know anything about. And we really don't learn too much about anything about the disease or what's going on in the world. Definitely nothing about what's going on in the rest of the world. Right. They have no electricity. They have no connection to the outside world, really. Uh, and and they encounter some people in the wilderness uh, that uh, have broken into their house, and uh, they make a shaky kind of uh, alliance with them. Uh, it's two two really good actors, uh, Christopher Abbott. And um and uh Riley Keo uh and, their child. and they have and, their and they have a child. And um so that basically is is it. And you you characterize it, Jerry, as kind of like a sideways kind of remake of Panic in Year Zero, the uh, That's Ray all I can movie. think of. That's all I <laughs> yeah. can really think of like five minutes into it. I mean and you're right. It is. Uh, it absolutely is. And, and and you can probably mention a few more other movies, but the whole framing of it as being like kind of a horror movie or whatever was just. It was. Well, first of all, let me let me say this. I I I felt it was kind of weird that the movie is so steeped in the kind of a silence. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. That there's a dark, there's a darkness there. But but uh, I I get so irritated with these uh, end of the world scenario movies like or, or TV shows like uh, The Walking Dead or this where uh, where everybody is either broken down and completely uncommunicative or uh, or uh, or absolutely incredibly dour all the time. Uh, yeah, I realize it's a world that's falling apart, but you know there's still humor. We can still. You know, there's still, you know, you have to express some kind of conne- emotional connection. Or otherwise, why even go on living? Yeah, why I go mean, on struggling to live in a world like this? You know, I I didn't think the movie just to get down to it. I didn't think that the movie was aggressively bad. I just thought that I was like, wow, what a disappointment. This is, yeah, you know, you're I mean, after seeing Cresha, <laughs> which yeah. is absolutely you're stunning. Underwhelmed though, I think. I think you're underwhelmed. Very underwhelmed. I mean, and so was the audience. The audience when it ended. Oh, you know, the audience hated this movie. What 
Yeah, they hated it. And uh, uh, the, um, it's definitely the kind of the artiest. Like, it's got to be the most silent movie to open at like uh, 2,500 theaters at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ever, maybe. It just reminds me of a slow episode of The Walking Dead, to be honest with you. That's what it was. That's it what it was. It was a slow episode of The Walking Dead. I don't see what was so special about that. Um, I, I mean, I don't hate the movie. I just like, it. to me, I hate to say, it's just run, the movie was incredibly run of the mill. I it, mean, it was. <clears throat> it was. It was. It was. Uh, it was. It, it wasn't a satisfying movie-going experience, really, because it wasn't even visually arresting in any way. It was mostly dark because it's you know they don't have any light, so they're carrying lamps around and everything. And I, I think it's. I think that's what it's trading on in in its sort of horror cachet. I mean, there's a little blood here and there, but uh, you know, uh, uh, but you know, I. Uh, I didn't find it horrific or anything, really. I, I, it didn't move me in it really in any way. Uh, it was just sort of, eh. Like, to me, it was like a Twilight Zone episode with 30, yeah. 30 extra minutes of people staring at each other. Yeah, I mean, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago. Um, I don't remember what it was called. I just remember it was, very, it was a very underground film. It was um, one of the actors from Days and Confused was in it. Um uh-huh. And it was something, don't go outside. It was something where a kind of outbreak just happened. But it kind of reminded yeah, me of that, but just not it, as interesting. That was, that, was a good, that was a good movie, though. If you're talking about that movie, uh, Right at Your Door, that was good. Yes, Right at Your Door. That's exactly the one. That, that was much better. Much better um, than this. But here's what, here's, okay, so why do critics react like this? When it looks like, okay, so it comes in with this director who's the new kid. You know, new new treasure kid on the block. Uh, it, it looks like it has, you know, a respectable cachet, you know, marketing wise, because it's got that same kind of font that, uh, you know, they had the, you know, for instance, like the witch had or something like that. You know, yeah. it makes it look serious. Like this is a serious movie. You know, this is not this is not a goofball movie. Uh, uh, so they go into it, I guess, and they're expecting good things, and uh, I guess. There's, uh, I guess I can understand that critics are disappointed a lot of times, uh, are saddled with having to write negative reviews a, a lot of times uh, if, the, if they're cleaving to their conscience. And, um, uh, and I assume that there's a strong will to want to go against, you know, to, to love something. Right, right. And, uh, they, I mean, and, and I think that there might be a critical kind of thing where they're like, they're, they're like, I want to love, I want to have something to love about, you know, the movies that I've seen this year. I mean, here I have I've seen 200 movies already this year, and I think I like five of them or something, or 10 of them, or let's say even 20. Um, right, right, right. I want right. to love something. And, uh, and if it looks like it's something that would be okay to love, then they love it. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, right, it makes right, sense yeah. Critics well, would love this. But well, there are I, I, a lot of good movies to like. I mean, I just, this well, just seemed like, well, just seemed like a weird we, one to jump on. You know, yeah. it's just, uh, and plus, even a bad movie can, it doesn't have to massacre, it doesn't, 
a, a bad review doesn't have to exist to massacre the movie. I mean, even in bad right. movies, you you can grapple with well, what does this say about the culture? Does it even engage in the culture at all? Uh, how do, it, it doesn't have to be so surface as to say, oh, it was a great movie. It had great photography, and well, very few movies don't have good photography. I mean, you that's true. You really have to search search to find a lot of movies that don't that aren't in focus and well framed. Because the <laughs> I mean, if they're the like they're that, doing. they usually don't get exi- released. So you know, it's like yeah. And then you have then you have a movie like uh, uh, the Book of Henry, which is uh, absolutely lambasted. <laughs> and hey, I, 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 I got to tell you, I, I got to tell you, I've I've read the synopsis of the Book of Henry. I'm like, man, I'd love to see that. It, it turns into a completely different movie halfway through, and they think that's a flaw. I'm like, well, that could be really, really. I wanted, well, I want a wacky movie. That sounds good. A wacky movie where Naomi Watts is basically a mother, but a, a mother, but acting as a child. But yeah, I mean, what's not to love there? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the uh, that's that's an interesting thing you're bringing up. The uh, Book of Henry, which is the Colin Trevorrow movie that's coming out. I don't know if it's hit the theaters yet. It is hit the but, theaters. I think it might. By the time this show airs, it might be out of theaters from what I've read. <laughs> so, I mean, but uh, Colin Trevorrow, of course, who did started off with uh, Sa- Safety Not Guaranteed, the, the indie really time travel movie. movie. By the way, I, a really I, fun movie. I mean, I I, I hated it. It was it, I, I, I felt, did, but it's a fun movie. I, I felt it's that it was better like than this. Yeah, I, well, I felt that it was a pan that movie was a pandering kind of mess, but. Uh, and then, of course, he went on to from the, from that great success, he gets the three hundred billion dollar prize of like uh, uh, of directing the new uh, Jurassic Park sequel, Jurassic World, mm-hmm. uh, which a lot of people hate. But I don't think they hate it because of what anything he did. Uh, so, but okay, so now he's going back to more of indie roots, which I I applaud him for that for for going back to that. That's that's a good thing. But uh, apparently. This is more uh, sort of uh, uh, pandering, kind of uh, schmaltzy uh, uh, ridiculousness, the kind of which I felt he traded in in his first movie, about a kid uh, who's a genius that uh, in the first part of the movie, which is apparently the most enjoyable part, he's, he's just displaying his genius. The second part of the movie, uh, he uh, he... He turns his eye to the next door neighbor kid who's being abused by uh, the father, played by Dean Norris um, from Breaking Bad, uh, and uh, and then the third part of the movie he gets a disease or something, and, and then that, it turns into a disease of the week weepy. Oh my uh, god! And apparently, and I'll, apparently it gets even crazier once he gets the disease. I, 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 I might have that's to what check I understand out now. From, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I mean, he the kid the kid the kid dies and her mother becomes an assassin and tries to kill the kid's father and has a rifle. And, I mean, it it, it, it takes cool a whack turn. But I'm totally cool with that. But you have to also <laughs> understand this: uh, he's an an indie filmmaker who made one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and now he's going back to his indie roots. If the knives are out for him, as they tend to be in this culture, once somebody gets a taste of success, it will be with this movie. Uh, but also, when he comes back, he makes something wacky like this, uh, which sets him up for more uh, criticism. 
But some movies exist because you want people to say, hey, remember that movie from years ago, that mother and the sick kid, and she becomes an assassin, like, out of the blue? And there's some movies like that. I guarantee you that movie Passengers, if Passengers had ended with Chris Pratt dying and Jennifer Lawrence waking up another one of the Passengers, people would be talking about that movie for years. Instead, yeah, uh-huh. it ended with a Hollywood, a Hollywood bullshit ending that makes it just like every other movie ever made. Yeah. So we haven't even bring up we haven't even brought up with Colin the big he has an impossible job ahead of him. Episode nine. Yeah, because he has he's got Star Wars. So now yeah. you got all the Star Wars fans like running around in little circles in a panic. Well, no, they were already in a panic. Look, I don't envy him or Kathleen Kennedy because you're when one of the major stars of your movie dies before that movie yeah. is shot. You're, I mean, let's be honest. We were, you know, this film, this 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 new trilogy. I mean, it's still the episode eight could be a masterpiece, but I don't envy anyone on episode nine. What do you do? You had to rewrite the script. I'm sorry, you had to rewrite the script. Yeah, you um, have to. I mean, they won't they won't be taking her out of episode eight, but I mean, and this isn't said in any kind of insensitive way, because Princess Leia was essential for the. Uh, you know the George Lucas films of the, mm. uh, the George Lucas film, but the original what we know is the original trilogy yeah, that started right, in seventy right, seven. Right. Mm-hmm. She was essential for those. She wasn't necessarily essential for the Force Awakens. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. So, I mean, so, no, that, that was that's a not a slight on her. No, no, no. It's 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 a slight on. I mean, how do I say this? I'm about episode seven. Episode seven was. I don't think I've, I don't think any of us in our lifetime have ever seen such a big movie made in the editing suite. I mean, let's see, that's really what I've learned about the post-production of that movie is where the movie was made. Um, and it shows. I, I, there, I mean, even J.J. Abrams has admitted there are mistakes in the final film. Um, so having said that, um, I, I just... I, it seems like there are a lot of there are a lot of things mistakes. It's, I, I think it's very interesting when you when you read about that movie now. People, like everyone involved with the movie miss, yeah, maybe we could have done this different. I don't think I've ever seen that in a major movie where people say, "Oh, we should have maybe done this, or we should have done this." Well, so, then again, yeah. let's let's be fair though. Let's be fair. This is a Star Wars movie, and every movie. Every every Star Wars movie before and after uh, is uh, after its release is going to be parsed down to the very second oh, by yeah. fans. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So I mean, there's gonna, yeah, there's and, gonna and, be, and absolutely, absolutely, with a Star Wars movie, you got a lot of fingers in that pie, man. Uh, more so, than you've ever had before. I mean, it's yeah. Been, I mean, yeah. And they're and they're all I mean, nitpicking the edit. You know, maybe yeah. if we bring up this more and take down this and. Yeah, they're they're every single second they want to be kind of overwhelmingly fan pleasing, and often they do that to the sacrifice of the whole. I know, but, and, uh, but, and that's the know, thing that really. How it goes. I mean, it's, but give, this is what I say about Star yeah. Just just to finish, I, I think I think in the two the two new movies that we have in this you know of this thing so far, I think The Force Awakens is the more fun movie if that makes sense. I think Rogue One is a technically more is technically the better made movie, if that makes sense. Well they're both technically, you know, uh, totally up to snuff. So I mean they're yeah. te- you know, technically 
you if you're talking about craft wise, they're they're, they're fine. But I think Gareth Edwards is a far better director than J.J. Abrams, but that's just me. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's difficult to talk about the the direction of these movies because it's just like because there's a committee. It's a committee movie. It's, yeah, it's we don't fair. even know who's responsible for what. So it's I, I, I especially with <laughs> Rogue One since since half of it was filmed by another director. Um, you know what? It, it, you know, a director of a movie like this, it could be just a question of uh, you know, just be there and make sure we make the days <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. You know, and the, the, to get back to Colin Trevorrow, you know, that's probably what he did on Jurassic World. He's there, and he's going to do it again for Star Wars, where he'll be there, and he'll be like, okay, you go over there, you go over there. He'll be directing traffic on the set. He says yeah, action, he says cut. <laughs> Richard Marquand of this movie. Oh, let's be honest. Someone said that many years ago. So he has the Richard Marquand job this time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, but, I mean, it, but, you know, it, well, it's, that, really, it's funny it's, that people really bring up. Hard. Yeah. It's really hard to be an auteur and make a Star Wars movie. I mean, it's, it's just, hard to be an the auteur two are not, com- not compatible. Yeah. Unless you're still Lucas. playing on. It doesn't matter if the fucker owns it or not. You're still playing on George Lucas's playground. Even though he, even though he is, he doesn't own it anymore. But he doesn't own it. He calls the shots. He does call the shots. To be honest, he does not in the sense that they go to him. But you, you know, you're anybody, any, and especially the three filmmakers who are the three, any, all the filmmakers involved in this, they all you know that they all go home at night. Well, before they go shoot the next day, well, what would George do? You know, I mean, I don't, give, I don't care who you are. You're, well, what would George do? He would yeah. produce Howard the Duck. Hey, I want to. Uh, hey, I want to bring up a couple of quick things, uh, and then I've got to go to dinner. You guys are full free to continue the conversation after I leave. But uh, before I leave, uh, I, uh, I I saw two things that I'm just going to say something real quick about, and then bring up the death of someone. Two things okay. I saw. Uh, I I got Netflix. Haven't seen House of Cards yet, but I did see Stranger Things finally. Uh, so I'm okay. way behind the dialogue on that. All I have to say yes. is not dissimilar from what everyone else has said. I had fun. It's a fun show. It does feel like they took every single trope from every single 80s movie mm-hmm. and put it down on a piece of paper and said, okay, let's write a story around this. Like all these. Yes. <laughs> You know, from everything that. Spielberg did to even something like Firestarter, you know, the, the, the thing with the mind and bleeding from the nose, with like every, you know, yeah. it, it's fun. Um, it's but it I don't it's take exactly it seriously right. at all. Uh, the second thing I saw was The Keepers, and this is an example of how documentary should be because these filmmakers really embedded themselves in a world for years. And they let the participants of the actual story tell that story. The Keepers is is really good, and I think it's actually better than Making a Murderer, only because uh, there's a side issue that comes up in The Keepers that really becomes the main issue. It's about a nun that was murdered in the 60s, um, and uh, her killer has never been brought to justice. But in the process of investigating her murder, they find out about the school that she taught in, Mm-hmm. And the sexual sexual abuse of of the male uh, students in uh, male and female students in that school, and that becomes like a primary part of that story about the level of abuse that those people <clears throat> those kids endured 
Um, so I think it's it's I think it's better than making a murder because I think it, the the ramifications are the stakes are higher, and uh, the duty to p- paying tribute to the victims. It's really a victim story um, mm. in a, in the best way. Uh, and the murder mystery is interesting. I was interested by it. Um, yeah, I want to check that out because both of you have really raved about it. So I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, it's 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 very very good. I wouldn't say I didn't think that it was better than making a murderer. I don't feel the need to compare them really, but uh, but um, uh, I understand what you're saying, and and I generally do agree that it's, I mean it's a bigger subject matter. Uh, it's it's more than just the lives of. Two or two or three people, and and, and, and it's more than just know. a murder mystery. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Although you can say that you know, just for making a murderer, it is. It, you, we are talking about you know the larger issues yeah. than that, or you know, are are you know the the uh, the quality of justice that's that's here in, in this right. country. So I mean, that's a big subject too. So. Uh, but uh, and by the way, you know, I personally believe that those people who are in jail for that murder are victims. So, um, I mean, I understand that viewpoint, but you, but you know what I'm saying? Sex abuse in the church is, yeah, is not something you equate thing. with a murder mystery. So it goes in a yes. very kind of different direction. But they are they are you know obviously related. Mm-hmm. Yes, to it's, it's more it, it, in, a way, in a way it's more interesting because it veers away from from the original case. So yes, uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, okay, the final uh, final thing I want to bring up. Yeah. Uh, not a death. I said I was going to talk about a death. It's not a death. I guess it's a death of sorts. Rex Reed was fired, and uh, yeah. You know, uh, I laughed at the people that tried to like garner sympathy from that because obviously I feel bad for the film critics that have been fired from their jobs and that kind of thing. Rex Reed is a little different. Uh, Rex Reed is probably, I would think, in his late seventies, if not eight, early eighties by it's, now. It's got to be the eighties uh, now. He's way past the point where he should have stopped, and especially when you read his reviews, you understand he just he he's a reviewer just so he could. Still vile, like bile all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's yes, really unpleasant person to read. Yeah. Uh, so, he gives. I, I feel like I feel like Rex Reed is the kind of when people think of critics, you know, some of them think of Roger Ebert or Gene Siskel, you know, which are sort of the reasoned kind of critics. But they also, I think the worst, the the worst picture that could come in their mind is somebody like Rex Reed, who just seems to be there just to shit on things. And and mm-hmm. and I mean, I know I can seem like I'm shitting on things too, but again, I prefer to talk about positively. About I mean I'm always honest, but I prefer to talk positively about the things that I love. Sure, uh, sure. I I don't think that he he. I think that he relishes doing the bad reviews. I I do think that he was uh, out of uh, – he might have always been. I've never been a big reader of his. But um, uh, I think he's – at least recently, it's just clear that he doesn't like the types of movies that are being made now. And so he's just uh, – Going out there and and you know reiterating that and maybe it's time to just give it up, you know, <laughs> you know. 
he can always go write a book but, or something. But but also, I mean, when 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 your review is based upon how fat Melissa McCarthy is, you you That's aren't reviewing like, the movie. Yeah, you know? so That's stupid. He's a certain type. It, he's a certain type yeah. of really vile person that uh, I think I think film criticism is better off without, frankly. Yeah. His reasoning is always specious. Like it's always like what. Uh, you're just always, you know. But sometimes, you know, he's he is crapping on movies that I think deserve to be crapped on. But uh, uh, anyway, I, I uh, you know, I, I I agree. I, you know, I'm kind of I'm def- definitely over him. Uh, but there was a, a notable death this week. Uh, John G. Adelson, the uh, yeah. director of uh, Rocky. Uh, I'll just name some of the great movies that he's done. Uh, Joe, uh, with uh, Peter Boyle as uh-huh. a as as a staunch conservative uh, targeting hippies in the hippie era. Uh, Save the Tiger, uh, the thing that won Jack Lemmon his Best Actor Oscar. A great, 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 great movie. A business a businessman, a fa- uh, middle aged businessman uh, facing a failed uh, uh, a failing business. Um, WW and the Dixie Dance Kings, which I recently learned is uh, Burt Reynolds' favorite of his his own movies, which I was really surprised by. But it's a, a that's a wonderful uh, little comedy uh, about uh, set in the fifties with Burt Reynolds uh, agreeing to manage a, a little country band, uh, and of course Rocky, which he won his Oscar for. Uh, uh, but also things like I I, I like Neighbors or uh, the um, probably one of the few people who likes that John Belushi Dan Aykroyd movie uh, and and of course the Karate Kid you know oh, yeah, is, he, I, I think you have to bring up the Karate Kid it's an important movie I mean but no also Save the Tiger I'm really glad you brought up Save the Tiger because I think that's an incredible film. And it holds up very and lean well. On, lean on Me, too, which he, uh, yeah. yes. he had hoped Lean on Me would be a kind of a rocky story in a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. I do have an interview with him that I've never aired, uh, and I guess I'll do that now that he's passed. But um, it's interesting how in the interview he took offense to the notion that Rocky and the Karate Kid are similar. He said, no, no, they're entirely different movies. And yet I read his like New York Times obit that had a quote from him saying he really resisted the Karate Kid because it was so similar to Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it obvious that had the similarity but, uh, yeah. there? I mean – you know, I mean, maybe he's speaking. Maybe he was speaking to, you know, just to give him the benefit of the doubt. He might have been speaking to just the style of the movie because, you know, Karate Kid is a much slicker movie than Rocky is. Rocky, Rocky is, for whatever people's memories of it are, uh, I think people tend to conflate their memories of the later Rocky movies with the original Rocky, and so they kind of. Uh, you know, they kind of denigrate the original Rocky a little bit. But when you go back and look at it, obviously it's a very, very gritty movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't uh, that template hadn't? You know, I mean, it, it, it is kind of an old kind of template, an old-fashioned template. But yet, uh, it hadn't been like hammered into us like it, it it was in the decades since Rocky. Right. Uh, um, and so. Uh, so maybe that's what he was speaking to. Was you know that was the difference. But obviously well, they're the both. Power of one. 
also <laughs> oh yeah, well, I mean he did. Movie. You know, just to name some of the other movies that he did, A Night in Heaven. You know, they're, they're going to be movies that you probably haven't seen. Slow Dancing in the Big City with Paul Sorvino, uh, the uh, the formula with uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah. Um, no, we, we, uh, we've seen the formula. <laughs> we've all seen the formula. God, we, oh my God, have we seen the formula? And, and there were a lot of movies that I've never seen, like Four Keeps or Eight Seconds, which was the rodeo movie. A uh, um, yeah. Right. <laughs> Happy New Year. I have seen that. The thing with Peter Falk. It's a remake of a French film. Uh, it's a heist movie. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there, there, there's some mischief there. But he was a good traveling, you know, kind of journeyman director that, uh, that you know, deserves deserves credit. You know, no, he made good so. movies. Uh, I mean, and, yeah, and, and among those movies, among those movies, he made two or three that were really good, like movies that will last a long time. And uh, very few directors can claim that. Um, so mm-hmm. he, he made a legacy. He left a legacy and uh, eight, died at 81, I think. Um, so, you know, it, it was a worthwhile career. Definitely. His family should be very proud of what he left behind. Uh, creatively, I think. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Also, I'd yeah, like to say, good. I saw a tra- I saw a trailer last week that made me laugh, and I'd I'd like to see it, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but uh, <laughs> Daddy's Home Part Two. <laughs> there you go. God. There you, go. you said it. Not I couldn't me. believe that this was coming out. I'm glad you said it, not me. I'm glad you said did it, not you me. See, did you see that trailer though? It's a crazy. I haven't trailer. seen the trailer yet. It made me laugh. I mean, you have Bill Gibson and John Lithgow in it. And, I mean, that's the only reason why I want to see it, uh, because of the contrast that they bring to it. I, I don't think it'll be a masterpiece, but it might be good for a few laughs. Which, you know, Hey, no I could use all the laughs I can get intentionally, not unintentionally, but yeah, I could definitely use. Definitely. All right. All right. All right, I think on that note, on Daddy's Home 2, I think we should end the show. All right, guys, we're going to be doing a special, by the way, guys, in December. We're not going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's new film or The Last Jedi. We're going to do a Daddy's Home 1 and 2 retrospective, okay? That's all we're going to talk about, the cinema of Wahlberg and Farrell. That's all we're going to talk about. (laughs) 